Um, today is a little bit different Sunday. We've got several different things going on. It's good to have with us today John Hutchison from uh, Frontline Missions. And he spoke to us in the Sunday school hour, told us about how the gospel is advancing in the very difficult places of the world. And he will be coming back to do that here in the worship service, going to be preaching to us today. And uh, it's just been great to partner with John. And uh, it's a blessing to know John, his wife, and the ministry that's going on there at Frontline. How many of you have seen some of the different dispatches from the front videos that they've done? We've used them in small groups and in other settings. Um, If you've never seen them, um, I have a set of them in my office. I'm glad to lend them out to you. They were, they're just tremendous video documentaries uh, around the globe in restricted access countries of what God is doing. We're still having station identification. Okay, I think we're good to go. Pardon the technical difficulties. When technology is working great, it's terrific. But when it's not working or there is human error, it makes you want to pull your hair out. So... Uh, I think we're good to go. Yes, he does. Thank you, Mr. Mike, for your presentation and for your work with Star Valley Health. Uh, My wife is a nurse. I have a daughter-in-law that's a nurse. I have another daughter-in-law that's a physician's assistant. And, of course, the pandemic hit us all very hard, but especially the faithful workers in the healthcare field. And I'm so glad that Emmanuel Bible Church is recognizing the healthcare workers and showing appreciation for what they've done and even having this special uh, opportunity on the 22nd to be more informed and answer questions. Um, COVID just was devastating for our nation and unfortunately it got politicized too and that made it even worse. But the dear folks in the trenches, the healthcare workers bore the brunt of it and we are so thankful for them and their unselfish labor of love and their long hours. And again, Pastor Mike, uh, Pastor Tim, I'm so thankful that uh, this church is showing recognition to the healthcare workers at Star Valley uh, Healthcare System. I appreciate your pastor. I've known him for a number of years. He's a man of God who puts what the Bible says first, not traditions, not following other people's expectations, but what does the Bible say? And uh, it's been a joy to fellowship with him. You folks have been faithful partners for many years. And as I mentioned in the Sunday School Hour, I'll be retiring as field director of Frontline Missions December 31st. Uh, We will still be doing some part-time ministry with Frontline Missions in the world's difficult places, which we'll see on the map here in just a moment. But uh, I'm thankful that we do have a partnership, and I'm excited with what God's doing here at Emmanuel Bible Church. I was reading the bulletin about the step that you're taking to have lay elders, and I commend you for that, uh, having this kind of spiritual leadership to help with the church staff. Uh, There's a quotation there in the bulletin from Mark Dever. I hope you'll read that. Uh, Mark Dever has endorsed Frontline's videos, dispatches from the front, and I also noticed the... uh, Table Talk Devotional Guides, and the editor of that, Burke Parsons, has also publicly endorsed Frontline's uh, Dispatches from the Front videos, which are in the foyer, uh, if you're interested in those, to help gain a broader view of how Jesus is building his church in the world's difficult countries. 
Also, if you've not signed up for our monthly e-newsletter, just give us your name and your email address on the sign-up list so you can get direct reports from the field. And if it's something, again, after a couple of months, it's not what you thought it was, you can just hit unsubscribe and you're done with it, and there's no further uh, responsibility on your part. So please take advantage of those resources out uh, there in the hallway. But you've been a wonderful partnering church with us, and I'm thankful that you also support our strategic partners, our national pastors uh, in their individual countries faithfully serving the Lord. So we're going to look this morning at Matthew chapter 9, valuing what God values, and uh, see from God's perspective how global missions, particularly in the world's difficult countries, are what's on the heart of God. So if you would turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 9, please. We'll begin reading at verse number uh, 35, right at the end of the chapter, verse number 35. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. And when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the labors are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Father, we ask you now to open our minds to understand your holy scriptures. Uh, we know we're so prone to lean on our own understanding. And I pray you would help us renew our minds to view the world around us, to view you as our Savior God in light of what you tell us about yourself in the scriptures. So Holy Spirit, open our eyes that we may behold wondrous things out of your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Valuing what God values. It's very important. Let's see, we might need some help on that, advancing for some reason. Um, can you advance to the next slide? Here we go with another station identification on the... Um, um, while I'm working on this, yeah, here we go. We tend to focus on things we can see. Our natural tendency is to focus and place value on temporal possessions and priorities. Because we're people of sight, we can't see spiritual realities. So we go by what our eyes can see. And so we place our value and priorities on our families, on our jobs, on our schools, on our children, on our work on our hobbies, on our recreation and leisure and retirement portfolios, whatever's left in those now. And so that's what we focus on. And yet God tells us to focus on what's eternal. But let me show you how this happens. There was a book written, oh, about 10 years ago called The Progress Paradox. It said how life gets better, but people feel worse. And they went through and examined all the leading uh, lifestyle components whereby we in the West have been so blessed. For example, and they found that we in the West, and they're including Europe and North America in it, live better than 99.4%, not of the rest of the world, but 99.4% better than everybody who's ever lived on planet Earth throughout recorded history. For example, through the advances of health care, 
life expectancy almost doubled in the 20th century. Life expectancy in 1900 was 47 years of age. By the end of the 20th century, through eradicating diseases like smallpox and getting pneumonia under control, life expectancy almost doubled to 77 years of age. In terms of economic benefits, real per capita income has more than doubled since 1960. The average new American construction home, get this, at the end of World War II was 1,360 square feet. That was the average, the end of World War II. Today, the average new construction home is 2,200 square feet. And that's just the average. So, in terms of health care, in terms of economic benefits, in terms of standard of living, our standard of living is better than anything our grandparents could imagine. So we have this better, these better life conditions and lifestyle opportunities, and yet the polls show that people's happiness hasn't really improved. I mean, we ought to be the most joyful people around. And at this point, I'm not talking about Christians. I'm just talking about people who have the advantage of living in the West. And yet polls show those who declare themselves as happy has flatlined since the 1960s. Those who say that they are really happy has actually declined, and the incidence of depression have risen in our culture to approximately 25% of the population. Now, there are those who do suffer depression because of hormonal issues, physical issues, uh, low blood sugar, and all of these kinds of things that present themselves, and they need medical help. But the majority of people who deal with depression do so because of an inward, self-centered focus. And that's not what the Bible tells us. The Bible tells us that you don't find happiness by looking for it, that we're to seek first Jesus' kingdom and his righteousness, and all these other things will be added to us. So our, we have it so good here in America, and it's so easy to focus on our temporal possessions and priorities but God focuses on the harvest. Did you see in verse 37 and 38, he mentions the harvest three times. Once in verse 37, twice in verse 38. And the harvest is a farm metaphor. Now, I'm from back east, from the state of Georgia originally. That's where I'll be going back to after I retire at the end of the year. But currently, our mission office is located in the upstate of South Carolina, Taylor, South Carolina. And for a lot of us who have an urban background, we just don't understand all the farm imagery, agricultural imagery in the New Testament. Jesus lived in primarily an agrarian society in the first century in Israel. And so they, he uses this farm, this agricultural imagery first, and he also uses the imagery of a shepherd but it's noteworthy that he values the harvest because from God's perspective, the harvest is composed of immortal souls. That's people who will live somewhere forever. Somewhere with Jesus in the new heavens and the new earth. Or unfortunately, if they reject Jesus, separated from him in a place called the lake of fire. And God values the harvest because it's composed of immortal souls, and it should be what you and I place the value on as well. The harvest represents people whom God loves, for whom Jesus died, and whom He is drawing to Himself for saving faith by His Spirit. And so, God's overarching concern for planet Earth 
is His glory. That's His fame. That's the sum total of His character among all the nations on the planet. God's not just interested in America. And we have to remind ourselves of that. We are Christians first. We're not Americans first. And I say that in some churches and people's eyes get this big. Jesus did not say in the Sermon on the Mount, seek first the United States of America and all these things will be added unto you. He said, seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness and all these things will be added to you. The kingdom of God's a lot bigger than America, brothers and sisters. The kingdom of God was here long before America got here. And guess what? The kingdom of God's even going to be here after America eclipses off the scene so God's, in fact, the most basic verse that we all know in John 3, 16, it doesn't say, for God so loved the United States of America. It says, for God so loved the world. So his overarching concern is for his glory among the nations through the spread of his glorious gospel. His glorious gospel that we have sung about this morning so beautifully, how you and I deserve the wrath of God because we're lawbreakers. We've all told lies at one time or another. That makes us liars. We've all taken things at one time or another, even when we were younger. That makes us guilty as thieves. We've all been greedy or coveting things that other people have. That's the Tenth Commandment. And that's just three of the Ten Commandments we've broken. And God can't let lawbreakers into heaven. And God is so holy that His wrath is poured out against rebellion to His holy law. And that's why Jesus came. As we sang a while ago, He's our Savior and our God. When Thomas worshipped before Him after the resurrection in the upper room, he said to Jesus, my Savior, my Lord, and my God. And Jesus kept the law perfectly. And when He was nailed to that old rugged cross, He intercepted. He blocked the wrath of God that you and I deserve as rebels and lawbreakers. And Jesus went through the crucifixion on the cross being separated from His Father for three long hours so He could promise you and me who are in Christ, I will never leave you or abandon you. And then He was, glory he was buried, He was gloriously raised from the dead on the third day as the Lord of glory, the Lord of history, and we can receive His gift of eternal life as we sang about a while ago through repentance and faith, asking God to forgive us for being the boss of our lives. That's what repentance is. It's a change of mind about who's going to be the boss. We've all gone astray, as Isaiah 53 tells us, like lost sheep. We've gone astray and turned everyone to His own way, wanting to be the boss of our lives. And we have to ask God to forgive us for being the boss of our lives and by faith ask Jesus to wash away our sins and become the new boss, be our Savior and Lord as the new boss of our lives. And that's how God is glorified through the spread of His glorious gospel, seeking lost sinners to convert into true worshipers. Jesus told the woman at the well in John chapter 4, the Father was seeking true worshipers. You see, we're not born as true worshipers. We're born as worshipers of ourselves. We are self-centered and in love with ourselves. We have a high opinion of our own opinions. We don't want our feelings hurt. We're in love with our feelings. I wish there was some kind of database. There's not. But I wish there was some kind of database of people that have left churches because they got their feelings hurt. 
You know why that is? Because we're in love with ourselves. That's why Jesus said in the second commandment, love your neighbor as you already love yourself. He knew we loved ourselves. And he is seeking lost sinners to be converted by the grace of God to be changed into true worshipers. If you take a gasoline vehicle and you take the engine out and you put in it, replace it with a diesel-fueled engine, you have converted that vehicle from gasoline to diesel. In the spiritual realm, God converts us from being worshipers of ourselves to worshiping the true God in spirit and in truth. So that's the harvest that God's focused on. Notice first the great harvest, the reality of the harvest in verse 35. It says, Jesus went throughout the cities and villages. This is Galilee, up in the north region of Israel, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every affliction. You see, disease couldn't exist in Jesus' presence. And because the king was here, he was healing people's diseases, but his first priority was preaching the gospel. Here's Jesus' contacts with crowds of people, preaching the gospel. Jesus was gospel-focused because he knew that's a person's greatest need to be reconciled to God, to be brought back into fellowship with God through the spiritual act of conversion and the new birth. And so Jesus is among the uh, crowds of people. And notice what it says in verse 36, when he saw the crowds, Jesus saw multitudes of people all around him in these villages, in cities, in Galilee. And as he saw them, it says, he was looking, he was seeing, he saw hurting people, and it said he had compassion for them. Jesus is love. We sang a while ago and before the throne of God, a great high priest whose name is love. You see, we have no claim on God ourselves because we naturally make ourselves the center of our lives before conversion. God is the one who was motivated by compassion to reach out to us. God so loved the world that he did what? He gave his only begotten son. His giving his son Jesus, God the Father, giving his son Jesus for us was motivated by his great love and compassion. And Jesus saw these hurting people. Here's the metaphor of a sheep and shepherd. And Jesus is the good shepherd showing compassion for hurting people he saw in the Galilee. And it says they were helpless and harassed like sheep without a shepherd. It was as if they were fleeced. You see, they didn't have spiritual leaders in their day uh, to speak of. They had the Pharisees and the scribes. But they weren't concerned in a pastoral way for the Israelite people, like when they were having problems or hurting or marriage issues or problems with their kids or illnesses. They didn't do any kind of pastoral ministry. They were just like religious policemen watching people to see if they could check off, to see if they were keeping all of the man-made rules they had added to the Old Testament. God had given the people of Israel the Torah, the first five books of Moses, the cult we also call the Pentateuch. But then the Jews, religious leaders, add to it the Talmud with a whole bunch of other religious laws they expected the people to keep. And so they were just like religious pe- uh, policemen checking people out. And you know, today people are burned out because they've been exposed to false versions of Christianity of different kinds, religious systems that just teach rule-keeping. And here is 
the matchless, spotless Son of God, Jesus, whose name is love, in compassion for hurting, wounded people. You see, sin is a horrible slave master. Sin promises people fun, and yet says, throw off any moral restraints, just do whatever you feel like doing, just pursue your own happiness, doesn't matter what other people think, it's all about being happy for yourself. That's, that's the modern creed in 21st century America today, that you just do whatever makes you happy. And sin lies to people, saying if you just throw off all moral restraints and do whatever you think will make you happy, you'll feel so wonderful. But sin doesn't tell you that it leaves you with guilt. Because God's put within us a conscience. And if we violate God's moral law, we're going to feel it on the inside. Romans 2.4. And it leaves people feeling empty. It leaves them in the aftermath with guilt and emptiness. And so Jesus saw these hurting people in the great harvest. Let's fast forward ahead to 21st century. Let's look at the great harvest today. The world population is growing at a rate of a quarter of a million people every day. This month, June 2022, the world population hit 8 billion people. Now we just can't even wrap our minds around numbers that big. The fastest growing religion is not Christianity, but Islam. Because Islam knows their goal of having a worldwide caliphate and bringing everyone under uh, their religious system of Sharia law. And they're serious about their growth. There's some 7,000 different language groups on the planet. And one-third of them do not even have part of the Bible available in their heart language. And then there are 330,000 Protestant churches in the United States and less than 10% have any kind of global missions focus like you folks have here at Emmanuel Bible Church to get the gospel to the ends of the earth. So, here are the most gospel-destitute nations with the highest levels of persecution. And I want you to examine this graphic for a moment. This is what's known, it was originally known as the resistance belt 100 years ago across North Africa, the Middle East, and Asia. In 1990, it was termed the 1040 window because it's 10 degrees north latitude above the equator to 40 degrees north latitude above the equator going across North Africa, the Middle East, and Asia. And of course, it includes Indonesia, the largest Muslim country in the world. There's some 70 countries here. Two-thirds of the world's population lives right here, two-thirds. So that means only one-third of the world population lives out here in the white areas. And these countries have governments that are either communist, atheist, Buddhist, Hindu, or Muslim, and they're doing everything they can to keep the gospel of Christ out. They won't give visas to American missionaries to come into their countries. They block, the governments block Christian websites because they don't want their people to go to Christian websites and find out about Jesus and his saving work on the cross. You can go hundreds of miles in these countries, not see a church, not see a steeple, you can meet people who've never met a born-again Christian, never ever seen a Bible before. And the sad thing is less than 10% of American missionaries go to where two-thirds of the world population is. That means we send more than 90% of American missionaries to the one-third of the world that's safe. Because not only are these gospel-destitute countries, they have the highest levels of persecution. It means their governments persecuting Christians, either by the government itself, like in North Korea, or in Afghanistan, 
Either the government itself is persecuting Christians or the family unit is turning on family members who abandon Islam or abandon Hinduism to turn to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And so the persecution is strong in these countries. And for so long, American churches and mission agencies have just written off these countries and called them closed countries. But that's not a Bible term. Because in America, we're focused on safety and security. We're focused on minimizing risk. But to take the gospel of Christ into these countries, we must take risk for the gospel's sake to tell them about Jesus. So, these nations have least access to the gospel. There's some 4,700 of what we call frontier people groups. These are people that have the same language, same culture, same ethnicity, and same religion. And somehow, individuals in these people groups may get around an internet firewall, find a Christian website, hear the gospel of Jesus Christ, ask God's forgiveness for being the boss of their lives, and invite Jesus to become their new Savior and Lord. And they don't know anybody else that's a Christian. And they dare not tell anybody else because they could get killed for it. And so less than one-tenth of one percent are Christians in in a frontier people group. It basically means they have no churches and no Bibles. And the sad thing about it is American mission agencies are not even targeting many of these frontier people groups to take the gospel to them. Because they say, well, you know, it's too dangerous, or they're too hard to get to, or it's too risky. And so there are people in these frontier people groups who are born without any knowledge of Jesus Christ. They grow up without hearing of Jesus. Nobody ever prays for them by name. And they need someone to volunteer to take the gospel. And that's why Frontline Missions has this internship program for two months in the summer and then later two years to train up young adults ages 20 to 35 to be risk takers and take the gospel to these frontier people groups. So with so many people, groups, and nations that have limited access to the gospel, then we need new strategies. We can't keep doing missions as it was done in the 80s, 70s, and 80s. We've got to embrace risk-taking, gospel advance, to reach frontier people, groups, and restricted access nations. And say, hey, you know, it's not all about me and making sure that I'm safe and secure. I shared in the adult class this morning about going into Muslim countries in underground house churches that have been raided by the police and going to minister to those brothers and sisters who worship faithfully week after week at great risk because their governments are hostile to biblical Christianity. So what are the restrictions on the harvest? Well, you say, well, it must be the hearts. People just aren't coming to Christ as much as they used to. No, the problem is not the hearts of the harvest because even like in China, 1.4 billion people, it's estimated 10,000 Chinese people a day are coming to saving faith in Jesus because they're hearing the gospel for the first time and they're coming to Christ They're seeing that atheistic communism doesn't have the answer to the hole in each person's soul, the emptiness there. They've tried materialism as they try to copy what we do in the West, and they found out that goods and possessions and money don't fill the hole in the soul, and they're finding out that only Jesus fills the soul. So the problem's not with the hearts. The problem here in America is we've had the gospel for more than 200 years, and people have reacted to it or reacted to distorted views of Christianity. 
and just click. They've turned it off, say, hey, I'm walking away. But that's not what's happening in China. That's not what's happening in uh, the Muslim world where more Muslims have come to Christ in the last 52 years than all the 1,200 previous year history of Islam. Say, well, maybe it's the power of the gospel. Maybe that's just not as strong as it used to be. No, dear friend, never forget what Romans 1 says, that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes. There's no problem with the power of the gospel. And you say, well, maybe it's the funding of the harvest. We just don't have enough funds to send the missionaries out. No, it's not the funding. God's already provided the funding for the harvest. You say, really? He has? Where? It's in our pockets. He's waiting for us to give it. He's already provided the funds. If we'll prioritize first the kingdom of God. So what, what, why, what is the actual restriction on the harvest? Notice in verse number 37, he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but what? The laborers are few. Why is there a minimal number of laborers? Why is there a labor shortage in global missions? Why so few new young people volunteering to go to the hard places or believers involved in disciple-making? Well, it's a strange paradox because you would think if God had redeemed people by the blood of His Son out of the darkness of despair and guilt, that they would want to go proclaim it from the housetops. And it's also a serious difficulty because if God had given the proclamation of the gospel to the angels, they obey exactly what He says. They would have already carried it out. So, what's the factor for why there is? That's the fact. What are the factors for a minimal number of laborers? A lack of spirit control living. You know, even after we come to Jesus, self tries to reassert itself daily in our lives. And we have to submit to the Holy Spirit and ask the Spirit of God to take control of our thoughts and our words and actions so we make God-centered choices each day instead of self-centered choices each day. And if we're not controlled by God's Spirit, you know what we do? We give in to apathy. Where it just doesn't bother us. We don't care that there are people all around us with no shepherd. That there are people all around us who are like the ones in verse 36, who are harassed and helpless because sin is a terrible taskmaster. But it just doesn't seem to bother us. We give in to apathy if we're not spirit-controlled, or we give in to fear where we're so afraid that once we get in our comfort zones, you know, a comfort zone's a rut. We get in our ruts that are very comfortable. And we've all got people around us that are friends and co-workers and neighbors and people we've known for years. And we've talked to them about hunting and fishing and sports and our families and our grandkids and our children and all of these other things. But we've never stepped outside our comfort zone to take a risk to bring up a gospel conversation and tell them about Jesus. And say, have I ever told you about the most important relationship in my life? And they say, you mean with your spouse? No, my relationship with Jesus. And then you proceed to tell them what it was like before you were converted, how you had no hope of heaven, you had a fear of dying, you had the guilt of your sins, you didn't know how to get rid of it, and someone told you about Jesus, 
and the fantastic work he did on the cross and through his burial and his resurrection. And you heard that Jesus was pursuing you. And by faith, you repented of your sins. You asked God to forgive you for being the boss of your life. And you invited Jesus to come into your life. And you're simply explaining to this person. You're not saying you, you, you. You're explaining to this person what Jesus has done in transforming your life. And now you have his peace. Now you have no worries about dying. And heaven is assured. It's not something you guess so or hope so or have your fingers crossed about. Because Jesus said plainly in 1 John 5, He who has the Son has life. And He says, These things are written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. Not guess so or hope so. And so that conquers fear. But it gets down to a low view of God. If God's glorified when He rescues people out of the miry clay and it lifts him up for that story to be told. We ought to want to see him glorified as often as possible. By the way, when it comes to a global impact of the gospel, notice these statistics. More than 95% of the graduates of most Bible colleges and seminaries in North America, so that's Canada and the U.S., minister, now notice, 95% minister to the 5% of the world that lives right here. When 99% of the unevangelized, those who have not heard the gospel, live outside the U.S. and Canada, they're in Latin America, they're in Africa, they're in Europe, Greenland, they're in Asia and the South Pacific. And it's as if we're hoarding the gospel in North America. There's a huge imbalance here. And that's why we need to be challenging our young people to get a focus and a vision on being used of God to take the good news of Christ to the hard places that haven't heard. And notice this particular graphic as well as it fills in the, of Protestant missionaries sent to the major religious blocks of countries on the planet. Notice please, we send 73% of missionaries to nominal Christian nations. Now that would be like Mexico. 91% of the Mexican population self-identify as Christian. 91%. That's higher than the U.S. because in the U.S. right now, 69 to 70% of the people publicly identify as Christian in surveys. So 91% in Mexico, and that's predominantly because of the uh, Roman Catholic Church. But they know who Jesus is, that He's the Son of God who came from heaven's glories to purchase our redemption. They know He died on the cross for sins. They just don't know how to appropriate His death, burial, and resurrection for themselves because they don't understand grace. They've been taught that they have to earn or merit righteousness before God by praying through to Mary with the rosary, their prayer beads, by going to Mass, to confession, by doing pilgrimages to merit righteousness before God. That's what they're taught in countries like Brazil, that's 93% self-identifying as Christian. Philippines, something like 89% self-identify as Christians. All numbers higher than in the U.S. But look at this. We send 6% of American missionaries to Muslim-majority countries. There are more than 45 Muslim-majority countries on the planet, and we only send 6% of American missionaries to Muslim-majority planets. Muslim-majority countries on the planet. And here's the difference. 
Because in Muslim-majority countries, they're taught Jesus is not the Son of God. He's only an esteemed prophet like Abraham or Moses or David. And they're also taught in Islam that Jesus did not die on the cross, that it would be blasphemous for an esteemed prophet to die on the cross, so they believe Judas was substituted at the last moment. So in these Muslim-majority countries, there's 1.8 billion Muslims on the planet. We only send 6% of American missionaries there, and they don't even know who Jesus is. So that's why there's such a great harvest there with great needs. Now notice the great request. Verse number 38, Jesus says, Therefore pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into His harvest. This is a biblical priority to pray for more gospel workers or goers, for more workers to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. And it's a priority of Christ to command to be obeyed, that we pray this prayer. And yet it's a pattern we often overlook. When I was a pastor in Georgia a number of years ago, I was having my quiet time one day and praying through my prayer list. And the Spirit of God convicted me as I was going through my prayer list. The Spirit of God convicted me, John, you're not praying for more goers, more workers in the harvest. And I've told you in my word to pray that. I mean, this is from the lips of Jesus. And it didn't just apply to his 12 apostles in the first century. And I said, Lord, you're right. I don't have it on my prayer list. And I had to ask him to forgive me and begin praying on a regular basis. God, would you send more workers into the harvest? Would you send more laborers into the harvest? And as a pastor who presided over many, many prayer meetings in the local church where I was pastor, people would say, pray for the Jones family. Mr. Jones passed away and the family's in sorrow. Pray for the Smith family. Uh, Mrs. Smith is in the hospital and needs physical healing. Uh, Pray for the Morgan family. Mr. Morgan's lost his job and he needs employment. And those are legitimate things to pray for. The Bible tells us to pray to bear one another's burdens. Those are legitimate things to pray for. But you know what? I never remember anybody raising their hand in 25 years of local church ministry and say, can we please pray for more laborers, more goers in the harvest? And Jesus told us to pray that. It's a pattern we often overlook. This needs to be a regular prayer request in local churches who value the harvest. In my home church in Greer, South Carolina, this is on the regular Wednesday night prayer list every week. Pray for more laborers for the harvest because we want to value the harvest. Notice this biblical practice. He says pray. It comes from the Greek word in the original language, deomai, which means to pray earnestly or plead. The New American Standard says plead for more laborers. The ESV that we just read says pray earnestly. So it's not something we do lightly. It's something we pray about seriously. When more than 3 billion people on the planet haven't even heard of Jesus, we need to be praying for more. And then he says that he would send out laborers. And that's interesting in the original as well because it comes from the Greek word ekbalo, which means to thrust out push out more workers into the field because it's not our natural inclination. Even when God called Moses to be his representative and speak to the most powerful ruler on the planet, Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, Moses said, no, I can't do it. I'm a man of slow speech. 
God called Isaiah to be his prophet to the nation of Israel. And Isaiah said, no, I can't do it. I'm a man of unclean lips. God called Jeremiah to be a prophet to the nations. And in Jeremiah 1, Jeremiah said, Lord, I am but a youth. I'm too young. Don't call me to do this. So throughout the Bible, we see this tendency of the Lord's servants to want to say, uh, uh-uh, I think you got the wrong guy, not me. And you know what God does? He has to push us outside our comfort zones, shove us out, thrust us out into the harvest for the glory and fame of His name. And that's why we've come up with this 31-day prayer calendar that's on the table in the foyer of those nations across North Africa, the Middle East, and Asia where Jesus has not been named, where these are gospel dead zones. And we're asking people to pray for one country a day. So like today is the 12th, and that's Albania and the Balkans, right up here. And pray two requests. Name these countries before the throne of grace, because intercession is what's needed for these nations with least access to the gospel if we're going to obey what Jesus said and pray for more workers. So number one, you pray for more goers. Matthew 9, 38, we just read that. And then pray for special grace for persecuted Christians. It's easy to remember, two G's, goers and grace. And you know how long it takes to name one country before the throne of grace with these two requests? Less than 60 seconds. Less than one minute. This is entry-level intercession. You want to pray longer? You can. But by the way, families that do this with their children find out the kids get excited about it. I've had people tell me, John, you were in our church two years ago. You introduced the 31-day prayer calendar. We're still using it, and our kids are keeping us on track with it. And guess what? Your children learn geography in the process as well to get on their hearts the nations. So we've seen the great harvest, the great requests. Notice our great God. It says in verse 38, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest. Now, studying the names of God in Scripture teaches His character. I went through and made a list of all the names and titles of God I found. I had over 55 names on it. Names of the Father, names of the Son, names of the Holy Spirit. But they teach us who He is. Like in the Old Testament, His name El Elyon, the Hebrew name for the Most High God. There's no God superior to our God. Allah is not superior to our God. He, our God... Jehovah God, Yahweh, is the Most High God. The 330 million gods of Hinduism don't come anywhere near close to our God, who is the Most High God. And then, for example, his name in the New Testament, Christ or Christos, which is the Greek equivalent of Messiah, that teaches Jesus has three offices as prophet, priest, and king. So his names teach us his character. And what God has highlighted in this name is His priority of the harvest. The harvest is so important to God, He built it into one of His names and titles. It's so important. And what we see in this title that God uses to teach us of His character is first His sovereignty. He's in control of the harvest. Would you notice please at the end of the verse 38 that He would send out laborers into His harvest. It belongs to Him. He's in control of it. He's calling out a people for His name from the harvest. And He is the one who does the sending. So He's in control of His harvest. 
And then we see His sympathy. He cares for the harvest. Remember back up in verse 36? He, Jesus, had compassion for hurting people. He felt compassion for souls in darkness. He loved souls in darkness. He whose name is love, as we sang about a while ago. He yearns for people in darkness to strip away their pride, to lay aside their sin, to turn to Jesus as He invites them to come. At the hotel I stayed at this morning, I checked out, and I gave a gospel tract to the young woman there. And I said, if you'll read this, this shows you how much God loves you and He wants you in His family. And it shows you also from the Bible how you can know for sure you're going to heaven when you die. And she was very kind and thanked me for it. I said, it takes you right to the Bible and shows you what God's promised to you, but how much God loves you and He wants you in His family. You know, Allah does not tell people that regarding Islam, that Allah wants people, loves them, and wants them in His family. But our God does. And He cares for His harvest. So what's needed to value what God values for you and me? First, we need a Godward focus. His glory as the only God worthy of worship. His fame. There's no other God that is worthy of worship as He created this world, as the, then He redeemed us by sending His Son, and then also His great grace to us shown on the cross. The problem is, it's like R.C. Sproul once said, amazing grace is not amazing anymore because it doesn't move our hearts with awe. That's the problem with amazing grace. It doesn't amaze us anymore. We need to come back to a realization. God, restore the awe and the wonder in my heart for your grace. We sing a song, I stand amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene and wonder how He could love me, a sinner condemned unclean. When's the last time you really wondered how God could love you? I mean, even Vladimir Putin, as wicked and evil, a liar and an adulterer and a thief and an individual who's trying to steal another country and bombing hospitals and orphanages where women and children are even as despicable a man as he is, God would save him if he would humble himself and repent of his sins and turn to Jesus. And it would be amazing to think God would save as wicked a man as that. Yes, he would. But when's the last time you stop to think how wicked yours and my own hearts are and why His grace was necessary for us. And who's God looking for to value the harvest? Those with another's focus. Intercessors who will start praying for more goers and pray seriously. God, would you raise up more goers? And even from our own congregation, in the next generation, would you raise up from the children and young people so that we would be a sending church like uh, Antioch Church in Acts 13 that sent out Barnabas and Saul. Raise up from our own midst more goers to go. And then God's looking for volunteers who'll share the gospel with hurting people around you. And there are hurting people all around us. We just need to open our eyes and look. Who are willing to step outside our comfort zones and share the gospel with hurting people around us and say, you know what? If God wants me to go, I'm willing to be a goer. Challenge young adults like we have with our internship, ages 20 to 35, saying, look, would you just pray about going to one of these countries for a two-month summer internship and see if God's calling you long-term? 
And who else is God looking for? Investors who will say, by faith, Lord, I want to prioritize your kingdom. I want to look for ways to find extra, to give more, to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. Because God's the owner. We're just the managers. It's not our money. It's his money. He's entrusted it to us to channel it where he wants it to go. So do you see why God values the harvest for his own fame and glory? Because he's looking for the ultimate fulfillment at the marriage supper of the Lamb where he will present a bride composed of people from every tribal group, every people group, every language group and nation. Present that bride to his son Jesus. And he's looking forward to that with great anticipation, a future event. So I'd ask you this morning, are you involved in some type of gospel ministry to make disciples, to share Jesus? Will you start praying for more goers on a regular basis, especially for these countries that have such little gospel light? God is blessing this church. Every time I come, I see new people here. It's growing here in Star Valley. It thrills my heart to see how this is a light for Jesus Christ. But there's no limit to where God can ultimately take a church when it's focused on worshiping His glory, and then that drives us out into the harvest fields to share the good news. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank You for Your great love and compassion to love us in spite of our sin. Thank You for providing Your Son as Your love gift on the cross to purchase our redemption and absorb Your wrath against us. And Lord, help us to value the harvest like You value the harvest. Help us to take it seriously and realize that that's what your priority is, the harvest, people who need to hear about Jesus. Would you continue to bless this church for your glory and use it to draw other people to Jesus Christ and his wonderful saving grace, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, John. We're going to sing in just a minute. 10,000 reasons. But before we do, just take a deep breath. Okay, you're all awake, you're all with me. I know you want to leave, but I want to talk to you just for a minute. Thank you, John, for the message. Thank you for what God's called you to do, going around the world, training, intervening. And as John was speaking, I felt the Holy Spirit really speaking to me, Sunday school and church, reminding me of Philippians chapter 2, when... The Lord is talking about Epaphroditus through Paul. He says, receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor such men. For he nearly died. Not that John almost died, but he put himself in harm's way many times, going to many places. He nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life. And, you know, we don't, like, often give emotional invitations, and I don't want that to be this, but I want this to be just a time where we as a church covenant before the Lord to do something. My prayer as a pastor would be that we as a church are willing to be risk takers for the gospel. You know, young people that are out here. We got a lot of kids. You're growing up in this church. We got a lot of teenagers. We got a lot of young adults. As you look at 
your life that God has in front of you, don't just be sitting there thinking, what do I want to do with my life? Would you pray, young people? God, what do you want me to do with the life you have given me? And give your life back to the Lord. Like Isaiah, here am I, Lord. Send me. Um, I remember several decades ago getting to go into Cuba. And when we were going in, the State Department had given us letters that said, you get in trouble, you're on your own. And I didn't like that. I'll be honest, I'm a chicken. I did not like it. And I was scared and at times very uncomfortable there. It was a blessed time in my life. And I have to admit something before you. And that is, I've let, over the last few years, my illness be an excuse. And as I was sitting there, I realized I let my passport lapse. I can't go. Step of faith for me is I got to go renew my passport. Do you got a passport? You may be sitting there saying, Lord, I'm willing to go, but if we don't have a passport, we can't. Step number one, am I willing? God, I'm going to go get a passport so I can go. And then as a church, that we would pray specifically, that we would work, we would plan, we would think, how can God use us creatively? In some of these places in the globe that we're talking about, creative access countries, what are some creative ways that we, from Emmanuel Bible Church, can take risk for the gospel? As we close today, would you just, with me, before the throne of God, present yourself and us as a church to do that? Will you do that with me? Let's pray, and then we're going to sing, and we'll be dismissed. Let's look to the Lord. Father, as John spoke to us today, it is your priority to send forth laborers, servants. As John spoke in Sunday school, lambs among wolves. Lord, we're pretty comfortable. I'm very comfortable. Forgive me. Lord, I want to be willing. I present myself to you to use me however you see fit. Lord, as a church, we present ourselves to you. Lord, you didn't save us to just give us a good life in western Wyoming. You saved us to bring glory to yourself by your name, Lord Jesus, being known where it's never been known. I pray for some young people in this place that, Lord, you want to use 
there's a tremendous battle in their heart. No matter what that ends up looking like, Father, I pray that that young person, those young people here today, would just relinquish the control of their life to you. We thank you, Jesus. It is in your name we pray. Let's stand. Let's sing together 10,000 reasons. Man, there are 10,000 reasons, aren't there? 10,000 reasons we can bless his name. Let's do it as we close today. Make sure you greet John in the foyer. Make sure you say hi to Mike as well. We're glad he's with us today. But let's praise our great God as we close. Sun comes up, it's a new day dawning. It's time to sing your song again. Whatever may pass and whatever lies before thee, let me be singing when the evening comes. Bless the Lord, my soul, oh my soul, worship His Jesus' name.